For four Sundays in a row, we're going to listen to just a portion of Jesus' longest teaching, his Sermon on the Mount, where he was standing by the shores of the Sea of Galilee and gathered on the hillside with thousands of people who traveled great distance to see him, to hear him, and hopefully be prayed over by him and healed of their afflictions. Our first installment was last Sunday with the very beginning of that Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. And even though we're going to spend four Sundays listening to this sermon, we're not even going to get through one-third of it because it's all of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and into chapter 7. But with Lent on the horizon, Ash Wednesday is February 22nd, we won't be able to make all the way through it before we shift gears. But recall last Sunday, the Beatitudes, where Jesus defined a happiness that is quite literally out of this world. It can only be obtained in heaven. But we spend this life storing up the treasures there that will bring us that happiness for all eternity. Jesus, remind you, talked about happiness for those who in this life were sorrowing and suffering, those who were hungry and thirsty, those who were being persecuted, those whom this world accounted for nothing would gain everything in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus laid out the path that if we go through life with humility, seeking holiness, then when we enter heaven, we will find our happiness. That's the Beatitudes. That's how it all started. But in the very next verse, that's where the gospel starts today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, where Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He wasn't saying what he hopes we will become or what one day we will be. He was talking about right now, both to those who are listening to it then and to us who are listening to him now. We then are the salt of the earth. We are called to be a light to the world. And salt was very valuable to the people of Israel and Judah in Jesus' time. And not just to them, but to all the Greeks and to all the Romans. This is one of the reasons why little Israel and Judah, they were very small patches of earth and it wasn't very good land for agriculture. So what purpose did they serve? They were sitting on the largest salt deposit in the known world at that time, and everybody wanted a piece of it. It's the Dead Sea. That's the lowest point on earth. We're not talking about sea level, but 1,320 feet lower than sea level, just down the mountains from Jerusalem. You go from peaks to valleys, and you find the saltiest place anyone in the world at that time had ever seen, a lake that had 40 times more salt content than you would find in the ocean. So much so that no fish or wildlife could live in it. You couldn't even sink in it. You would just float on the top. That's still the case today. In Israel and Judah, they owned it. It was theirs. God gave it to them when he gave them that promised land, flowing with milk and honey, but filled with salt. And salt in ancient society was worth its weight in gold. All across the Roman Empire, salt was used as a currency. That's how the emperor seed to it that his legions of soldiers were paid. They were paid in salt. The Latin word for salt is S-A-L, sal, from which we get the word salary. That's how they earned the upkeep for their family. That's why they wanted to conquer Israel, and in 63 BC they did, so they could control all the salt and keep filling the coffers of their soldiers to conquer more and more lands. But why was salt so valuable? It served so many different purposes. In that time, of course, long before electricity and refrigeration, salt was the only means on earth by which people could preserve their food and make it last a little bit longer. 
Salt was also, in the age before ketchup and condiments in your spice rack, really one of the few things that you had that you could flavor your food that actually made it taste better and more tender. But salt could be used to heal wounds. We make it sound like a bad thing when someone tells you to stop dwelling on something in the past. You're pouring salt in an old wound. If you were injured in Jesus' time, you would want someone to pour salt in your wound because it was the only thing you had to try to clean it out and stave off a serious infection that could kill you. Salt has so many different uses, but it also was sacred. Even uh, the Greeks who worshiped Zeus and Apollos and Athena and Poseidon, they believed that salt was divine. And the Israelites treated it as such because wherever sacrifice was happening on the altar in the temple at Jerusalem, Salt was added to every burnt offering they offered to God. Jesus then, telling those listeners who had nothing, who owned nothing, who had very few prospects of any future happiness in this life, he was telling them that they are worthy. Jesus was telling them they are priceless and of great value. They are essential. He was explaining to them how God looks upon them, and he was expressing an aspiration on how he wished that people would look upon each other. God made us. God sustains us. But he also made our foes and our enemies. And God, who looks upon all of us as essential and worthy of great value and priceless, he believes that since we are all his sons and daughters, since we are all Jesus' brothers and sisters, that we too should look upon each other as worthy of great value, as essential, as priceless. And this world needs us to do for it what salt did for so many so long ago, to preserve Christian culture in this world that is losing it, to season this world around us with the flavor of Christian values as they are so desperately in need of it, but also to help to heal this world where there are so many people that are so sad and so desperate, so despairing, and so lost. That's the salt worth its weight in gold. That's how God views us. That's how we should view each other. Salt can be found in our bodies. We have salt in our sweat, salt in our tears, salt in our blood. Jesus shed all of that, blood, sweat, and tears for us and for our salvation. What about the light? Well, we don't appreciate light unless we really have known true darkness. And thank God Thomas Edison didn't give up. It took him 10,000 attempts in his laboratories before he finally got the light bulb to stay lit. And how different our lives would be in the life of the world if he wasn't able to bring us that light. But Jesus is talking about the difference between light and dark and the stark contrast of life and death, good and evil. And I would draw your attention to what happens here in this church and every church the night before Easter. Those of you who are converts to the faith have experienced the Easter Vigil. Those of you among us who are catechumens and candidates, it's coming for you on Saturday, April the 8th as we prepare for this year's Easter. And I would challenge every Catholic to put it on your bucket list to attend the Easter Vigil at least once. But most people don't. Everybody wants to come to Mass on the eve of Christmas. Very few want to come to Mass on the eve of Easter. Why? Because it's the longest Mass of the year and it starts late at night. So we will be in total darkness. This year it will start at 8.30 p.m. And all the lights in this church will be put out. All the lights around the church will be extinguished. And the only light that will occur will be when we have everybody go outside. And we will bless a fire 
and we will light the new Paschal candle. This one over here by the baptismal font, there's only two feet left. When it started last Easter, it was five feet tall, and it's burned all throughout the Easter season of last year, and at every baptism and funeral that happens in this church, and the new one is on its way. It's as big as a missile launcher. And we bless it out there at that fire. And then the deacon will carry it into this darkened church. And he'll sing, the light of Christ. And everyone else will sing in response, thanks be to God. And it's just that one light. Everything else is dark. But what's amazing is when that one flame is brought into this church, how much light it can cast onto these walls around us and the ceiling above us. And that procession, that ritual that begins the celebration of the greatest miracle ever, the resurrection at Easter, it's meant to convey two things, what the world was like before Christ and what the world is like without Christians active in it. Before Christ, this world was so dark. There was no way out. There was no way up. People lived in despair. They were dying in their sin. Heaven's gate was locked for them. That's the world before Christ. But then he came in to be that light, that light from heaven, that light at the end of the tunnel that shows us the way out, that will show us the way up, that will lead us to the happiness that we seek in heaven above. That was the world without Christ. The world without Christians goes back to the darkness. And we see that happening all around us with people that are saying, I'm spiritual but not religious. I believe in relationship, not religion anything but organized religion because it's an institution and people are turning against the institutions that have fostered a civil society for thousands of years and they're ripping off the anchor that our faith has provided for us, ripping off the anchors of absolute truth and the natural law that keep us grounded in a civil society where people truly respect God, themselves, and others just as Jesus recommended, as sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the only thing that preserves our society and protects us from hate and turning on each other as we see happening all around us. The world without Christ was dark. The world without Christians is getting darker. And that's why we are called to be that light, not under the bushel basket, but shining for all to see. And that same light that was paraded into this church at Easter was given to each of us at our baptism. That's why that candle burns so often. Most of us can't remember our baptism because we were only this big, but it's a day we should never forget. And after the child has been washed clean of original sin in the waters of baptism, anointed with the sacred chrism, clothed with the white garment, then the candle is lit from that same fire. And the priest or deacon says to the parents and the godparents, Receive the light of Christ. That light is meant to be kept burning brightly until Christ comes again. We have been obligated to live in the light, to be the light, and to share that light with other people. To be salt and to be light means that we have to go out into this world and live our faith and sing God's praises beyond the walls of this church, outside of our homes, in the workplaces, in the schools, on the streets, in the highways, in the byways, to people who do not know God or those who have fallen asleep in the gospel. But too many times, of course, we find ourselves unwilling, unworthy, unable, incapable, or just too afraid. But let's look at the example that St. Paul gives us at the beginning of his second chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians in the second reading today. St. Paul was a murderer, a rather unlikely candidate to become a missionary, but God chose the weak to fool the strong. 
Paul said when he went to Corinth where he labored harder than anywhere else to plant the seeds of faith because they were all pagan and they were all superstitious. They didn't even believe in the one God. How was he going to turn them away from all of that to make them believe in one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ? He writes to the Corinthians and said, I didn't come to you with wisdom and sublime language and fancy words. He said, I came to you with fear with weakness, and not just a little bit of a tremor, but much trembling. But it was the power and the Spirit of God that made his mission successful. And that shows us then that if we can invest in the salt and the light worth its weight in gold, we've seen, if we can invest blood, sweat, and tears as Jesus did, then we can bring along our fear and our weakness and even much trembling. But if it's in Jesus' name, and for the glory of God, then he will reveal his spirit and his power through whatever we choose to do to make his name known and loved in this world that has forgotten.